Thanks for tuning in to the Harvest Springs weekly podcast. Every week we'll provide you with the weekend message from our Sunday service. But I am going to ask you to participate in this service with me as we read the scripture in just a moment. But before we do that, we have to have a time of confession. Okay, all of us need to confess in this room. Who in this room has texted and drove at the same time? Raise your hand. All of, most of us, a lot of us, I will confess I did this yesterday. Liz, my wife, was texting me and I was driving home from the building to get home and I pulled out my phone, texted back as I was driving. And we all know that that's, those are two things that don't go together, right? Text and drive, stay alive. That's what the MD, MTDOT says, right? Don't text and drive. Did I say text and drive, stay alive? Don't text and drive, stay alive. Check out this church sign that tells us not to do the same thing, but with a very Jesus spin to it. Honk if you love Jesus. Text while driving if you want to meet him. Right? We all know that texting and driving are two things that don't go together. And when they go together, the possibility of a collision increases. So today we're going to talk about a collision that takes place between two different forces in the world in a city called Ephesus that have two different responses by people. So if you have your Bible, pull out your, your Bible to Acts chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up on the screens. We're in the middle of a series called The First Church of the Nazarene, and we've been walking through the book of Acts for the past six weeks, and this is week seven, or no, this is week eight. Wow. We're going to be in this series through the end of June, so there's two more weeks after this. Uh, but we're really just giving a big, broad overview of the book of Acts. And today, I wish we could go from read Acts 16, 17, 18, and 19, because there are lots of stories in, in those four chapters about a man named Paul who is making these two missionary journeys around the known world of his day, following the Mediterranean world to go from city to city to city to plant and proclaim the message of Jesus, plant churches and proclaim the message of Jesus. But we're going to look at one city, a city named Ephesus, and we're going to follow this city from when Paul plants it in Acts to when Paul writes a letter to it that we know today as Ephesians. 20 years later when Jesus writes a letter to this church in the book of Revelation. Someone asked me a couple weeks ago, Michael, how, do, how should we read the book of Acts? How should, we re, how should we read the book of Acts? And that's a great question, one that I hope throughout this series you're beginning to understand because we can read our Bibles in such a way that we read different things, right? We read literature, different literature, different ways. We can read the Bible as an instructional manual, but we probably shouldn't do that. We can read the book of Acts as an instructional manual, as a way to follow step by step by step of how to plant churches, spread the gospel. And if we just follow it today, we'll have the same effect as the book of Acts did. Or we could also read Acts like an encyclopedia, like you read Wikipedia, right? How many of you guys use Wikipedia? Some of you do. Wikipedia is an online encyclopedia. If you need quick facts about anything, type it in. Sometimes people approach the Bible that way as well. And we should not read the book of Acts like Wikipedia or an encyclopedia just to get facts and information about the early church. Although facts and information about what happened in this first church of the Nazarene are important, facts aren't going to allow the Spirit of God to work in us today. So I'm inviting us this morning to read the book of Acts by doing three things. We're first going to read it. That seems so obvious, but really, sometimes I think we fail to do that. We got to read the text. Read the text. What does it say? What is the story it's telling us? We're going to read about the story about Paul, how 
how Paul goes to the city of Ephesus and this man named Jesus, his, his resurrection changes everything and the spirit that comes from him changes everything and how Acts is a culture-forming narrative. We read Acts as a culture-forming narrative. Paul is going about this known world, creating a different culture than the culture around him. And this is a culture defined by Jesus. So we read the story first to understand what it means. We examine the story. Second, to pull out some universal truths that despite the time and distance that separate us from the story in Acts and the geography that separates us as well, there are some things that we can pull out that are universal truths about who God is, who Jesus is, how we as a people, as a church should be today, what we should do, how we should think. We're gonna pull this universal truth out and then our job today is the third step is that we as a church and you as individuals and together as a collective church in Great Falls, Montana, we embody, we live out this truth that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. And when we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we are on mission with God in the world as a church. So we're gonna do that this morning. We're gonna read it. You're gonna participate in helping me read this story. We're gonna examine this text to pull out a universal truth that I'm gonna call Big Idea. And the big idea is right over here today. The way of Jesus collides with the way of the world. That's the big idea for today. That's the universal truth that comes out of Acts chapter 19, that the way of Jesus collides with the way of the world. And then you and I, we're gonna invite the Holy Spirit to come and be present with us so that we can seek him and examine our lives together about how we might live out and embody what it means to be a part of the way of Jesus. So I'm gonna invite you to do something with me. You already did the wave, but I'm gonna invite you to do something with me. We're gonna read Acts chapter 19, all of it, all 41 verses, but there are two parts in, as we read this, that I want you to participate in, okay? There is a saying that happens in Ephesus that I want you to say out loud with me. The people in Ephesus, they're gonna come together and they're gonna shout this phrase together that I want you to shout. It's gonna be up on the screens here. So we're gonna shout it on three. One, two, three. Okay, that was weak. That was really weak. I know, but it's 10.35 and the first service at 9.04 did a whole lot better than this service. Okay, so we're gonna shout this together on three. Okay, one, two, three. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. All right, so there's gonna be two moments as we read the scripture today. It's gonna be later on in the chapter toward the end where I'm gonna invite you to shout this if you wanna stand up and raise your fist as if you're participating in this mob that is gathered in Ephesus, you can do that or you can just sit in your seats and shout it or you can just say it quietly, however you think you should respond. But I'm inviting you to participate, okay? We're gonna tell this story together and you're uh, an important part of it, so here we go. Acts chapter 19, Luke tells this to us that after Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's starting his third missionary journey. And he comes to a city called Ephesus. Acts 19 verse one says, while Apollos was in Corinth, Apollos is another apostle of the gospel of Jesus. Paul then traveled to the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast. Ephesus was a port city in Greece, in Asia, where he found several believers. Paul asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And then he asked them, what baptism did you experience? 
And they replied, the baptism of John. And Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. And as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And then Paul laid his hands on them and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. So Paul goes to this port city, Ephesus, finds this group of men. In Acts chapter two, Pentecost day repeats itself in a different city. The Holy Spirit comes on them. They prophesy, they speak in tongues, other languages, and they receive the Holy Spirit and they're baptized in the way of Jesus and everything changes. And yet the story in Ephesus continues. In verse eight, then Paul went to the synagogue to where he started first, and he preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue, and he took the believers with him, and then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years, so that people throughout the whole province of Asia both Jews and Greeks heard the word of the Lord. So check out the time in this chapter. Paul's in Ephesus for two years. He's gonna spend almost three years of entire time there in Ephesus. He's gathered this group of people. They've received the Holy Spirit. He started a church there and Paul's beginning to spread this message about Jesus. People are getting upset. And then in verse 11, God gave Paul power to perform unusual miracles whenever Handkerchiefs or aprons that have merely touched his skin were placed on sick people. They were healed of their diseases and evil spirits were expelled. And a group of Jews were traveling from town to town, casting out evil spirits. And they tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus in their incantation saying, saying to evil spirits, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, leading priests, they were doing this. They were going around using the name of Jesus and the name of Paul to cast out evil spirits. But one time when they tried to do it, an evil spirit replied, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? This is quite hilarious scene here in my opinion, right? These men are going around, they're trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. And the demon says, I have no idea who you are and I'm not gonna obey you. And the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, overpowered them and attacked them with such violence that they fled from the house naked and battered. The evil spirit overtakes them. This story of what happened spread quickly in all of Ephesus, to Jews and Greeks alike. And a solemn fear descended on the city and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who, who, many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery or magic, brought their incantation books and burned them at the public bonfire. The value of these books was several million dollars. So the message about the Lord spread quickly and widely and had, had a powerful effect. And afterward, Paul felt compelled by the spirit to go over to Macedonia and Achaia before going to Jerusalem. And after that, he said, I must go to Rome. Paul's mission throughout the rest of the book of Acts is he's trying to get to Rome. And God's gonna take him by some twisted, uh, some twist in the narrative and he's finally gonna get to Rome at the end. But Paul in verse 22, he sent two assistants, Timothy and Erastus, ahead to Macedonia while he stayed 
a while there, longer in the province of Asia. But the story keeps going. Remember, Paul's been there two years. He's going to come back from where he went. Macedonia is going to come back to Ephesus. About that time, serious trouble. Serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius, a silversmith, who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He had lots of employees. He called them together along with, other, with others employed in similar trades, and he addressed them as follows. Demetrius gets up and says, gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from our business. But as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, Demetrius says, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned with the temple of the great goddess Artemis, that she'll lose her influence and that Artemis, the magnificent goddess who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all around the world, will be, will be robbed of her great privilege. And at this, their anger boiled and they began shouting, Let's do that one more time. They began shouting. All right. Everyone's gathered. There's been a disruption by the way of Jesus. People are forming. They're getting upset. Jesus is impacting their, their pocketbook, their economics, their way of life. And in verse 29, soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everyone rushed to the amphitheater, dragging with along Gaius and Articus, Aristocrus, that guy with a long name that starts with an A, who were, they were Paul's traveling companions. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, who also sent him a message begging him not to risk his life by entering into the amphitheater. But inside, the people were all shouting, shouting, some one thing, some another. Everything was in a confusion. In fact, most of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting and they kept shouting for two hours. What were they shouting? Okay, I'll keep going for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, imagine chanting that as you're gathered in this amphitheater in this Roman city of Ephesus. For two hours, because you believed your goddess had such privilege and power that you would chant this for two hours because the way of Jesus was colliding with your way of life. And at last, in verse 35, the mayor was able to quiet them down enough to speak. And he said this, citizens, citizens of Ephesus, everyone knows that Ephesus is the official guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, whose image fell down to us from heaven. Since this is an undeniable fact, you can stay calm and do, do not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, but they have stolen nothing from her temple and have not spoken against our goddess. And then the mayor goes on, if, the, if Demetrius and the craftsmen have a case against them, the courts are in session, and the officials can hear the case at once. 
Let them make formal charges. And if there are complaints about other matters, they can be settled in a legal assembly. But I'm afraid, this mayor says, I'm afraid we are in danger of being charged with rioting by the Roman government since there is no cause for all this commotion. And if Rome demands an explanation, we won't know what to say. Then he dismissed them and they dispersed. The story ends in Ephesus. Paul will come back to this church. But the riot disperses. Everyone fears what would happen if this gets out of control and Rome intervenes, and so they stop. But do you see this collision that's taking place in Ephesus? The way of Jesus is colliding with the way of the world. We're going to pray, and we're going to unpack that together, and how it collides with our way of life today. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. And we ask that you would open our eyes, you'd open our hearts, you'd help us to, to understand your truth, to read this story that is so distant from us. It seems strange, different, but in many ways, it's very similar to where we live today. So God, come and whisper, may we be attuned to your spirit. May your word be living and active among us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, verse six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to me, to the Father, except through me. When Jesus was on this earth, before the book of Acts took place, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you read, as you've been reading the book of Acts, I hope that you've picked up this fact that Luke never refers to this group of people who are associated with Jesus as Christians. Luke calls them followers of the way. Luke puts Christians in the mouths of outsiders to call people of the way Christians, associated with a man named Jesus Christ. But Luke is always, always very intentional of saying these people are people of the way. They're of the way of Jesus. And this takes this first occurs in Acts chapter 9 when Saul is persecuting the people of the way, the people who are following Jesus. And here in chapter 19, this group known as the way occurs two times. Luke tells us that this group of the way, led by this man named Paul, was beginning to disrupt, confuse, and collide with the way of what it meant to be a Roman citizen in the first century world. And they began to cause some confusion. I want to pull out a couple of verses from the previous chapters. Paul is going to these different cities. And in each of these cities, this new way of being and thinking and doing, this way of Jesus is colliding with a way of, and being, with a way of doing, being, and thinking of what it meant to be a first century Roman citizen. And it's causing confusion. And so in Acts chapter 16, Paul's in a Roman colony named Philippi. Paul will later write a letter that we know as the Philippians, as Philippians, back to the city. But when Paul gets there, people accuse Paul of teaching customs that are illegal for us as Romans to practice. What Paul is doing, the way of Jesus is confusing people. He's teaching them new customs that are illegal for Romans to practice. That's their own understanding. And then when he gets to the city of Thessalonica, Paul's later going to write two letters to this church. In Thessalonica, the people there accuse Paul 
and the people associated with them as turning the world upside down. And they say they've come here also to Thessalonica. And they are acting against the decrees of Caesar. And they are saying there is another king whose name is Jesus. People in the Roman world, the first century in Acts, are disturbed, they're confused because there's a new way of thinking, being, and doing that's colliding with the way that they've always thought and believed and acted. It's the way of Jesus. And they are so confused that they're accusing Paul of turning the world literally upside down because of Jesus. If you keep reading in in Acts 17 as well, Paul makes his way to Athens. In Greece, it's the place where all these philosophers come together and Paul is walking around the city and he makes his way to this discussion area called the Areopagus and uh, he has this discussion and he introduces this unknown God to them who is defined by resurrection and life. And people there, listen to what they say about Paul. They say, what's this babbler trying to say about these strange ideas he's picked up? He seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. You see, in Athens, there was an assembly that that took some foreign gods and authorized them to be worshiped in Rome. So Paul went through this whole spiel, and he's presenting Jesus to them. And he's saying, Jesus is above all these other gods. And that began to stir and collide with a very different way of thinking, being, and doing. And so if we go back to Ephesus, in chapter 19, there are two responses. Two responses to this collision between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. The first response we see in verse 8 is the response of repentance. So if you remember, we were reading this story, right? There are people who brought their magic books, their incantation books, and they had a public bonfire, and they voluntarily brought them to this bonfire, and they set them on fire at great cost to themselves. Millions of dollars. They just burned up because they encountered a way that was different than their way of being, and they chose to go a different way. They repented. You see, magic in Ephesus was of the utmost importance, and you see this illustrated And these seven sons of Sceva, they were what is known as the words of Ephesus. There were certain words and certain letters that if you said them in a specific order and a specific amount of times would then be thought to have power, power over the spiritual realm. And what these people realized, because this spirit overpowered people who were putting these words into practice, and they realized that there was no power in these words, that there was only power in Jesus, they turn away from their, their ways of the world, the way of magic and sorcery. They voluntarily burned those books so that no one else could have access to them. And they said, we're following the way of Jesus. And they repented. And there was radical transformation that took place in these people in Ephesus. That's one response. But we also have to understand the importance of this temple of Artemis in Ephesus to understand exactly what's happening in this story in Acts chapter 19. What were the people saying in this mob? Okay, okay. So there's this story 
later on in Acts. I hope, and hope I'm not doing this to you. Fascinating story. Acts chapter 20. Paul's talking to a group of people in Troas. He's talking so much and so long into the night that someone falls asleep. They fall out of the third story window and dies. Okay, and Paul goes down, raises that man back to life, and he goes and he preaches until midnight. Okay, so I hope you're not falling asleep this morning. But we may want to experience the power of the resurrection today. But so you're not falling asleep. What were the people saying in Ephesus? All right, everyone's awake now. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Artemis, she was this goddess who was the daughter of Zeus and Leto, who came down from the gods who lived very far from the people. She was born and brought to the people, they believe, where the temple, her temple was built in Ephesus. This temple took 120 years to build this temple. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world. Its remains can still be seen today in Turkey. They look like this on the screen. But I want you to imagine, that doesn't look too impressive to us. But we have a historian whose name is Pliny the Elder. And he writes this. And as I read this, I want you to imagine this next picture of a depiction of what this temple of Artemis would have looked like in Ephesus. Pliny the Elder, he writes this, that this, the length of this temple was over 425 feet. And its breadth, its width was 220 feet. There were 127 columns, each constructed by a different king who helped fund that construction. They were 60 feet tall. And there were 36 of these pillars that were carved with reliefs and pictures of what was happening in that ancient world. This temple stood on the highest mountain around Ephesus, and literally it overshadowed all of life and what it, mean, what it meant to be an Ephesian. You see, in our 21st century North American culture, we separate religion and politics, church and state, right? Those two things don't go together. In the first century world of Ephesus, that was a foreign concept. Religion and politics went hand in hand together. The influence of Artemis, not only to the city of Ephesus, but to the entire Roman world was great. There were other temples of Artemis in other cities around the province. People would come to go to this temple. I imagine Paul went to this temple. And its influence was great because it acted as the center of culture. The temple of Artemis acted as the central bank. There was great wealth in this temple. It acted as a gathering place for worship. It acted as a place where people had banquets. And it also acted as an asylum for refugees. If you were fleeing from someone in war, you could go to the temple of Artemis and you would be safe because this was a sacred place. Because Artemis's presence lived there. Her power dwelled there. There are stories that ancient historians talk about that one day Artemis left this temple and it was in 356 when Alexander the Great was born. And we're told by historians that Artemis in her presence left the temple to go be at Alexander's birth. And while she was gone, a madman burned down her temple. 
set it on fire. It was totally destroyed. It was later rebuilt again. But this story illustrates the presence that they believed her power, her, her, the power that her presence had. And it's also a story told about how the engineers who were building this building could not lift up the highest stone above the door in the front. And so one night, the engineer walked away, and he couldn't figure out how to do it. And the next, next day, he came, and Artemis herself had lifted up this heavy stone and put it into place. This is what these people thought about this goddess. She was powerful. Her presence determined what they did, and it dictated what they believed. It influenced every part of their life. Some people responded with repentance. Other people rejected it. That was the second response. So this man named Demetrius, he's a craftsman. His business was all wrapped up in this temple. And he made these little figurines of Artemis. Throughout the ancient world, archaeologists, let me say that word right, archaeologists, they have discovered many of these figurines. And they look something like this. I think we have a picture of it. We didn't have it last service, but they look like this. This is a picture of Artemis. This is a statue that probably was very similar to what Demetrius was building and selling. Because people would buy this, they would take it home, they would set it up in their household shrine, and they would worship it. And they would worship Artemis in their homes. It infected all of their life. And Paul comes and he presents a different way of being and doing and thinking and this collides with her being and doing and thinking. And Demetrius, because it affects his pocketbook, rejects Jesus and the way of Jesus. He stirs up a mob. They bring them to the amphitheater. And finally, the mayor intervenes and says, listen, if you don't want Rome to punish us as a city, you better calm down. You see, Paul was introducing this new way of life that collided with the way of life in Ephesus that in many ways is very similar to what we how we live our lives today. Most likely, Paul planted this church in Ephesus in the late 40s, maybe early 50s. If you flip later in your New Testament to the book of Ephesians, which is the letter Paul wrote to this church, probably 10 to 15 years later, I want to read this to you today so we can make some connections about what Paul was actually asking them to do. Because the way of Jesus collides with the way of the world. So Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. I'm just going to read through verse 24. He's reminding them, this church that he planted, he spent three years there with them. He's reminding them, with the Lord's authority, I say this, live no longer like the Gentiles do. Don't live like you used to in the way of being, doing, and thinking that was defined by Artemis. He says, because those people are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and they have hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity. But that isn't, Paul reminds them, that isn't what you learned about Christ since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and the former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. And he tells them instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and your attitudes and put on this new nature to create it to be like God, truly righteous and holy. 
We can read this text in this letter that we know as, as Ephesians. I think that if we take away the name of this, and if Paul wrote a letter to the church today, he would say a lot of the same things about the way of the world around us, right? Listen to what Paul says and think about how this relates to where you and I live today. Is that people who are not yet committed to living the way of Jesus are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life that God promises them. They've closed their minds. They've hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure, and they eagerly practice every kind of impurity. You see that in our world today? Right? All you have to do is get on social media, watch the news, just live, and you see this. Our desires, our appetites drive how we live. And our world tells us that if you have a desire, you can fulfill it right now in any way with whomever you want. Same was true in first century Ephesus as it is today. See, it's no different. The way of Jesus collides with the way of the world. And Paul is telling them, you used to live this way. Remember, put on the spirit, put on this new nature that you've, you're created to do. Some people repented. Some people rejected it. Paul writes a letter about a decade later to remind them, keep doing this. And then there's a letter from Jesus in Revelation with one more response that I think may apply to some of us here. If you turn to Revelation, this church in Ephesus that Paul planted, this is the only church that we get to see this progression from when Paul planted it in Acts to when he writes a letter to it, and now Jesus is gonna speak to it in the book of Revelation. About 30 years difference between all of these events. So from when Paul planted this church, 30 years later, Jesus is writing a letter to them in Revelation chapter two. He's writing to seven churches. One of them happens to be Ephesus. And he says this, Jesus, these are the words of Jesus to this church. About 30 years later, Jesus says this, write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered they are liars. So this church is discerning. You have patiently suffered, Jesus says, for me without quitting. But I have this against you, this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back, repent, and do the works that you first did. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches, but this is in your favor. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. And then Jesus closes this letter like this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who's victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So you see this letter from Jesus decades later. There's probably been one generation of people 
who've repented. They've lived after the way of Jesus and other people have come into them. But in this one generation, this way of the world has kind of crept back in to this church. And Jesus says, remember, remember, when you first burn those magic books, remember the change that took place and how you've slipped and fallen. Come back to me, Jesus says. Renew your love for me again. See, we as a church and we as followers of Jesus, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, there's always this act of ongoing repentance because we're so influenced by this world around us that they can sneak in. And oftentimes, like texting and driving, we put two things that shouldn't go together, together. The way of Jesus and the way of the world. And just, it's just come so natural to us because it's where we live. It's how we think, how we're conditioned to think. And yet Jesus says, follow me. I'll give you a new set of values, a new way of being, a new way of thinking, a new way of doing. See, the world around us defines a way of being and doing and thinking. The way of the world says that our actions can be determined by our emotions or our feelings. And Jesus says, the way of Jesus says, be controlled by the Spirit. You can control the things that you want to do that are against what I say. The way of the world says, consume more, get more, earn more money, keep striving for what's next. But the way of Jesus says, give up everything. The way of the world says, seek power. Seek power and use it to your own advantage. And Jesus says, power and leadership come through serving. The way of the world is full of anxiety and despair and depression. And Jesus, the way of Jesus is full of trust. It disarms our anxiety because we trust in him. The way of the world is, is competitive, right? We compare ourselves to each other and that creates that anxiety. And Jesus says, trust me that your identity is in me. The way of the world is, is popularity, right? How many likes we get on social media? The way of Jesus is a way of obscurity. Following a crucified savior who gave up his life for us. And the way of the world today is full of gazing at our own selves, if we're quite honest. At our screens, at our phones. And the way of Jesus says, look at me so you can become like me. See, Paul's world wasn't too much different than our world today. And the way of Jesus still collides with the way of the world around us. So I'm trusting that God's spirit has been speaking. I wanna invite us to do something as we close this morning. Each of you have a notes page on your chair in front of you, and there's also a pen there. At the very bottom of that note page, I wanna invite you over the next couple minutes to seek the Holy Spirit as an individual. So there's a couple questions on the bottom of that page, and I encourage you to actually do this in the next couple minutes, and then take this paper with you this week to think more about this, and let God's word dwell in you. At the bottom of that page, it says this, invite the Holy Spirit to help examine your life. I don't know where you're at spiritually today. Perhaps you have no reference to the way of Jesus, and today 
You're looking for an answer, and I believe that answer is in Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. You've been living a, a way that is very different than this way that we talk about, the way of Jesus. Today can be a day of salvation for you, but for others of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, perhaps we're like this church in Ephesus. God is asking us to continue this ongoing repentance about how the ways of the world encroach upon our way of following Jesus. So what areas in your life need to be transformed by the way of Jesus? What action or being or doing or thinking is present in your life now that reveals the way of the world? And what is Jesus asking you to repent of and follow his way? I just invite you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Because we examine ourselves and invite God's Spirit in, he speaks to us. And that as a follower of Jesus, we are always being conformed to the image of Jesus. We continually need the Spirit to speak into our lives, to point things out to remind us that our love for him may not be quite as strong as it was at first, but it can be when we allow his spirit to dwell in us, when we begin to live in the way of Jesus. So I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna have two moments, two minutes of silence. You have a pen, you have that paper. Invite God's spirit to speak to you. You can write, you can draw, you can doodle, whatever God is prompting you. And then take that with you as you leave today after we sing one last song. So let me pray for us. God, we invite your Holy Spirit into this moment. As we've read and we've examined, now it's really our turn to embody. Embody this story and embody the way of Jesus. So Holy Spirit, we come, we ask that you would help us to examine our own lives. Pray today that if someone needs to experience salvation in Jesus, that that today would be that day. The way of Jesus offers hope and life. And it's just as simple as asking Jesus to forgive your sins, his blood to wash and make you clean. But God, for those of us who walk with you, pray that today that your spirit, even despite the ways that we have let the world encroach on us, God, that you would just remind us that you love us care for us. Your mercies are new every morning. God, that you, your blood covers us, that we are your church, we are your people, we are your sons and your daughters, and you never stop loving us. God, you're asking us to follow your way, the way of Jesus. So Lord, speak to us, we pray in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Harvest Springs podcast. Our hope is that you hear the truth of God's word and that you are encouraged and challenged by it. If you would like to take your faith journey to the next level, check out the Getting Started plan on our mobile app or our website, harvestsprings.com. The Getting Started plan is a seven-day video-based teaching that will help you start your relationship with Jesus off in the right direction. And if there's anything that we can do to help, just fill out a connection card on our website or on the mobile app.